All right, good evening, everybody. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians 6. We'll pray and we'll, we'll get right at it. Lord, we thank you for your word. And um, we even thank you for the week we've had so far, good, bad, or ugly. Um, we thank you for it because it's either going to conform us as a hammer conforms hot steel into the shape it wants, or whether it was just a nice, easy blessing of a week so far. Um, either way, we thank you for it, because we know um, it'll accomplish what you set it out to do in our hearts and in our minds, and that's what we want to do, be conformed. So we pray that now as we've taken the time to get away from the world and set ourselves apart, to seek your face, to spend some time singing and worshiping away from the grind, uh, we pray that you continue to do that work in us, that that gentle work that your Holy Spirit does to change us and, and to bless us and to encourage us and to refresh us. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a refreshing chapter, I think. Um, Paul continues the, the thought that he had in chapter 5. And if, back up a few verses so we can start there to kind of catch up with where Paul is. Sometimes these chapter breaks aren't exactly where I would put them. They should have asked me, I guess. But they didn't. But I really feel like these first two verses go with chapter 5. So let's back up to verse 20 of chapter 5 and pick up where Paul left off. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul was adamant about them receiving this salvation. It's hard when you're trying to minister to somebody that you know desperately needs Jesus and desperately needs, he, need, they, he or she needs help. You know that the direction that they're heading and the guidance that they're taking from the world is leading them in the wrong direction. So you're here to give them the, the answer, the antidote, the medicine for the sickness. And it feels like you shouldn't have to beg someone to get better, but it feels like you have to sometimes. You shouldn't have to, but you do. Paul takes his heart for the Corinthian church and his heart for those that are unsaved to the nth degree and this is a part of Paul that we don't see very often. He doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve like we do today. He isn't dramatic in his love or in his expression of his love, but he gets awfully dramatic in this chapter. And so he's saying, I'm pleading with you. I'm like an ambassador for Christ. He's given me this ministry. This is my service to you. My service to the world is to implore you, to beg you on Christ's behalf, please be reconciled back to God. Please don't walk away from him. Please stop going down that path away from the one who loves you the most. And turn around and come back to him and walk towards him. He's begging him, you know. He says, you've read that it says there's an acceptable time, that there's a, there's a day of salvation. He's saying, I'm telling you, it's now. There is no other waiting that needs to take place in your life for this. There was a time of waiting. There was a time where the, the world was waiting for the Christ to come. They were hoping for the Christ to come, but he's come. There's a day of salvation. There's a day when Jesus would die on the cross. There was an appointed time for that, but that's happened. And since that's happened, the doors are wide open to heaven during this time of grace for anybody to receive this salvation. And he's imploring them, go through the door while it's open. You know, there's no more waiting around for the door to be open. It's wide open. Go through it. You know, please. There's no more waiting. Now's the time. Right before the Chicago fire, if you remember that or ready to written a story or written an essay on the Chicago fire. If you haven't, look it up. Horrible fire. Dwight Moody, great evangelist, was holding revivals, was holding meetings in Chicago at the time. And he gave out the gospel. He gave out the message and he told them, I'll meet with you next week. I want you to think about this. I want you to know what it means to turn. I want you to consider the consequences. You know, 
like any good solid teacher would say, and then come back and let's make a decision for Christ. And that night, the Chicago fire took place and thousands lost their lives to the fire. And he says, I'll never again not present the opportunity to come forward for the gospel at that time, right then and there. Because we don't have tomorrow. That's what Paul's saying. Now's the time. You don't have tomorrow. You don't know. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, there is no more reason to wait. It's foolishness to wait for the next time or the next gospel. I waited way too many gospels, way too many gospel presentations before I came to know Jesus. Way too many. Um, There are times when you feel the presence of the Lord and you know before you're saved even. You can feel that tug on your heart. I need to go. I need to do this. This is the time. Tonight's the night. Today's the day. Whatever time it was. And you talk yourself out of it because it's weird. It's scary. You've never done anything like it before in your entire life. Someone's asking you to stand up in a crowd that's all sitting and walk forward in front of them all and publicly admit that you're a wicked sinner, that you're in desperate need of a savior. And the weird part about it is you really feel like you should. It'd be easy to pass that up, I would think, if it was anybody else calling you. But when the Holy Spirit calls you, you, I've got to get up. I've got to. But that flesh will battle you and cause you to stay seated, almost screwing you to the chair, you know. And you talk yourself out of it, and the pastor doesn't wait quite long enough for you to jump out and hop up. And he goes, well, I see there are, and you feel that relief and the pressure's off and you sit down in your heart even. And you said, maybe next time, maybe next time. I did that who knows how many times before God jabbed me, you know. It's a tough thing like Paul has to have such a love for people in their hearts and their souls to know that the Holy Spirit's working on them, but also to watch them not respond, not be changed, not answer the call, not to say yes. Paul feels that with the Corinthian church. He's wrote a tough letter to them. That first Corinthian letter was a very tough letter of love. But over and over again throughout that letter, he lets them know why he's writing it. Love is writing this letter. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care. I would move on. See, we see that in our society more and more, people just moving on. I can find love elsewhere. I'll move on to the next place. Maybe love will be there. And Paul says, I'm not leaving you, Corinth. I'm not leaving you. I don't care how you feel about me. I don't care what kind of affection you have for me. I love you, and I'm writing you the hard truth Because I love you. No one else will tell you this stuff. And it's the exact kind of love that Jesus has for this world. I am telling you something, Jesus says, that you need to know, not what you want to know about yourself. I'm here to desperately plead with you, please, you don't understand. Your condition is terminal, and you need me to save you. See, that's what taking up your cross and following Jesus is. Paul is going to literally, well, figuratively is a better way to put that. I'm used to saying that all the time, but he's figuratively handing the Corinthian church the nails and the hammer for himself because he's at the end of this going to say, my heart is open wide to you, even though he knows very well that they don't accept him for who he is or love him the way he loves them. So he hands them the nails and the cross, he's, or nails and the hammer. He's truly taking up his cross and following the Lord because while Christ was on the cross dying for the sins of the world, the world was spitting on him. And that's a love that's, well, it's unbelievable. What love is this, John says? What love is this? Paul's trying to share that with them. I'm telling you what these other teachers won't tell you. Because I love you. Now's the time. Now's the day. Verse 3. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Paul has done his best to not do anything while serving. That's what ministry means, serving. To cause anyone to not come to Christ. Believe me, people are looking for the excuse. 
And to be honest with you, although Paul does everything he can not to bring offense, there are plenty of people that have found offense with Paul. So when he says this, it's not like a goal that we can all reach. I hope I never do anything to offend anybody. Well, Paul sharing the truth with people is offensive. Most of the Corinthian church is offended by him at this point. Some are repenting. Some are coming around, but a lot of them are the offense he's talking about is sin and blatant sin and, and, and overt um, um, hypocrisy in his, in his relationship with Jesus Christ. I, I don't do anything like that. I make sure that there's no offense in anything as I serve you because I don't want to be blamed for you not coming to know Christ. I don't want you to stand up and say, well, I will come to Christ, but I saw Paul. What a disaster. I don't want to be like him. So I've made it my aim, he says, to, to not have an offense in anything that I've ever done. That's a tall order for us. Some of us might even, as we hear that, think about the times that you blow your witness. I know I do. You know, you know what it means to blow your witness. You're a witness. You're a light for Christ. You're salt and light. You're the happy, jolly, I know Jesus, and you need to know him too your whole life. And then you have that day where you really don't care if anybody's saved because you're mad and you blow your witness. It's no longer about them. It's about me today, and they're all going to know it, and you wish you'd never had that day because the next day you come back to be light and salt, and they're all looking at you saying, I knew it. You're no better than the rest of us. Blow your witness. So we have those thoughts as we read verse 3. I don't know if I've ever given any offense. Well, I'm sure I have. I don't have to guess or think back. I don't even want to think back. I can say, hmm, I'm sure I have. It wasn't a desire. It wasn't intentional. Maybe a bad day, maybe full of selfish ambition, maybe just in the flesh. It can happen. So let me relieve you a little bit. If you turn to John chapter 3, we know John 3.16, but a few verses later, beginning in verse 19, Jesus explains, this is why people don't come to Christ. They may use you as an excuse, your blown witness, whatever it may be. Paul's offense, which he says he doesn't have any, or at least not that he can recall anyway. But this is what Jesus says. And this is the condemnation, condemnation of the world, that the light, Jesus, has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. He who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The relief here is that people love sin, and if they can look and find a reason not to come to this gospel, which has honestly nothing to do with you, and has everything to do with God, if they can use that as an excuse, truly the only reason they're not coming to this salvation is because... I like my darkness. I like not being in the light. I like doing what I want to do. You're telling me I can't be who I am comfortable being anymore in my sin, in my going accustomed to it. I enjoy this. I like this. And so it's because of you hypocrites at church that I don't come to church, that I don't believe in Jesus. And that's usually what they say. But a little bit of relief here. Jesus says, look, they hate me. And anything in you that looks like me, they'll hate that too. And honestly, anything that looks like them in you, that's the part of you they love. The very fact that the next day after you blow your witness, they're like, you're just like us, that relief they feel, and you know it in your heart, but may, they may not recognize it is because of your sin. Ah, your sin was exposed, just like our sin. Now we're talking. Now we can have fellowship together. Now we can have lunch together. Now I can converse with you because you're evil and I'm evil and we're in the dark together. It's the light that bothers them. You want to have a good day at work? Be carnal, like they are. You want to have a bad day at work? Be light, unfortunately. Now, there are a few that will receive Christ. John is speaking to Nicodemus as he goes through that, John chapter 3. Nicodemus is one of the guys at the end. I mean, you talk about a Pharisee who comes to know Jesus, he's him. He's at the burial. He helps Joseph bury Jesus. So he gets this. 
There are those that will see your light, that will experience it and understand where the flesh comes from and will be able to make a distinction between the Christ that dwells in you and lives in you and the flesh that you war against. They'll know because they are experiencing it too. Someone who desperately wants to know Jesus or is looking at least for a salvation of some kind will recognize that in you and you can be comfortable with that. That doesn't mean we should blow our witness. We're not getting permission here tonight at all. But we do want to do our best. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. I don't want the ministry blamed. We sang a song tonight. Um, second one from the end. It was, oh, what was this? What's, what's that? Here again. Just talking about here I am again, and, and you're, you, you know, I can feel you in, in, the, in what the writer means, what the songwriter means is in the room, this place, you're meeting us here, you know. And as I was singing it, I was really feeling like, yep, he's here in my heart. No matter where I am, he's here in my heart. And I got my mind just, I mean, no offense, Aaron, beautiful worship, Jenny and Aaron. Is, but my mind goes, you know, and I'm worshiping and I'm still singing, but my mind goes. And I remember when I went to Jerusalem and Israel, and um, moments, you know, times, you were in Jerusalem. Oh, yes. And I was at the Jordan River, and I was at the Dead Sea, and, 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 and I was at the Sea of Galilee, and, and I was at the gate, and I was in the garden. And I don't mean to make that face, but there were moments over there where I felt really close to God, but it was not at the right moments, you know? It wasn't in the Garden of Gethsemane. It, it wasn't at the Jordan River where the baptisms were taking place. None of that moved me. The location, the geography, it just wasn't there. I've never felt closer to God than here, in this place, in our sanctuary, with you people. And that's not meant to build, oh yeah, we are the, we are the new Jerusalem. No, 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 no. Not, not at all. I'm saying God is in our hearts, and when the Holy Spirit is moving and we're all worshiping and singing together, it doesn't matter the location, the, geogra- the geography. The only thing that makes Jerusalem great is when God's there. He, he literally tells us that in scriptures. You love this temple. You think it's so great. I'm telling you, not one stone's going to be left on top of another. I don't care about the temple because what's great about the temple is when I'm sitting there. But when my Shekinah glory leaves and when I leave this place, I've left to you your house desolate. It's just a pile of rocks as far as God's concerned. It's where God is. It's where the Holy Spirit is. My greatest time in Israel was when I was by myself. (laughs) No offense, but there's a lot of people. In the morning, I woke up at the hotel, the first place we stayed at before the journey began. We were at the Sea of Galilee. We were on the shore, and I woke up, and I looked out the hotel room, and I could see it was early. Nobody else was up, and your clock's all messed up because it's your first night there. So you get out, and you walk out, and there's just a bunch of street cats out there running around, finding stuff next to the Sea of Galilee, and nobody's out, and there's this mist, you know? And I'm describing the geography, and I'm describing the the mood. I don't mean to, because it wouldn't have mattered. But I walk out there, and I'm looking at the cats, and one of the cats is coming up to me, and I'm petting this cat, and I'm looking at the Sea of Galilee, and I'm like, oh, this is just really nice. To It was the quietness. It was the stillness. It was just me and him, you know? It wasn't about the beauty or the water or the mountains or anything like that that you could see. It was the fact that we were alone together. That intimacy was there. And he was allowed to be who he is. And I was paying attention to him and not the boats and the people and the buses and the, the directions we're getting and the food and the, the lines and the, you know, the worry, the scurry of, you know, those trips are stressful. There's nothing joyful about them. Hurry up. Come on. Go on. Okay. Back to the bus, you know. Okay, back to the bus, okay. Back to the bus. You spend more time walking back and forth from the bus and actually experiencing the Holy Land, you know? It's here. Wherever the Holy Spirit is, wherever I am in fellowship with God, it's it's amazing, you know? You can't beat it. If you're still looking for that someplace else, you can't find that in your own time, in your car, 
or in your home or in your quiet time or wherever, and you still think it's out there, a place that has to be gone to, a location to go grab and pull back, you're, you're missing something. You're missing something. Because he dwells in us. He makes his home with us, he says. That is the mystery of salvation, is Christ in us. What? I have fellowship with God now. Paul says, I've tried not to be offensive in anything. I've tried to let you know that now is the time. This is the place, you know. Verse 4. But in all things... We commend ourselves as ministers, servants of God. And I like to put that word servant in front of each of these. He's going to go through three kinds of things, ins, buys, and ases, as we go through this section of Scripture. Here are the ins. Servants in much patience. Servants in tribulations. Servants in needs. Servants in distresses. Servants in stripes. Servants in imprisonments, servants in tumults. If you don't know what a tumult is, it's a riot. Paul caused riots. Servants in laborers, servants in sleeplessness, servants in fastings. Some of those fastings were voluntary, some of them weren't for Paul. Patience. It takes a lot of patience to be a servant of God. I know most people want to quit. Everybody goes through that. Nobody's exempt from wanting to just kind of let go of the servant thing, no matter what God calls you to do. Everybody goes through that moments of, I don't know, you know, could use a break, a respite, we might call it. I remember running into a former friend, and I say former because he's walked away from Jesus now, but we ran out of Menards. I was going in and he was coming out. And he said about his church, they just put me on a wonderful two-year sabbatical. Of course, I didn't even know what a sabbatical was. I said, a sabbat? You know? A sabbatical. What's that? He goes, yeah, they got someone else doing it. For two years, I'm off, and I'm, and I'm going to come back in two years and just pick it back up again. And you guys can kind of probably guess what happened after that two years. He didn't pick it back up again. He had an affair with his secretary, left his wife and two kids, denounced Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, began to start teaching classes on atheism. Sabbatical? (laughs) Quit? Can't be in our vocabulary. You got to have patience. Don't quit. See, oftentimes we look at ministry, serving God as goal-oriented, you know, fruit-oriented. And I'm all for fruit. Don't get me wrong. I want fruit. I want fruit. But that's not why you serve Jesus. We don't serve Jesus for fruit. The increase is his. We plant, we sow, we water. God gets the increase. He's the one that does the harvesting. He's the one that's responsible for what takes place after that. Not us. We see harvest time right now, right? It's wonderful, and I, we've been watching it all summer long. Most of us are so excited in the spring. We see this much corn coming up, and it just all of a sudden that nasty brown field, beautiful as it is, dark, beautiful earth that we have, thanking God for it all the time. But you see those green shoots come up, you're like, there it is. There's the corn. You know? and we all say it. I think we all, oh, there's the corn. I know. We're all looking out the same window. We don't have to tell each other that, but there's the corn. We, look at, and we watch it grow and grow and grow and grow, and that's okay We're excited for the roots and we're excited for the leaves and everything's getting taller and bigger and wonderful. But the farmers are waiting for one thing and one thing only. I want to see the seeds plump up. I want to see some maturity. We need water at the right time. We need these seeds. Because otherwise, who cares? What difference does it make if it's got roots or if there's big plants? And oh my goodness, 12 foot tall corn and look at that. But there's nothing on the cob. There's nothing in the pods at all. It never came to maturity. So I'm all for fruit. Don't get me wrong. I want fruit. But that's not our job as servants. Our job as servants is to do the planting and the tilling and the sowing and the watering. The growing is all up to him. 
We've got to keep going. See, God's got me sowing seed, the word of God, every single Sunday and Wednesday. I love you people, and it's for you, and it's for this calling and for this ministry that he's called me to. It's also for me. If I quit this, if I was to ever quit this, my family would fall apart. I'm the leader of my family. I'm the spiritual leader of my household. If I ever stopped in the name of a sabbatical or in the name of retirement or in the name of whatever, I'm pretty sure I'd end up in a ditch someplace, you know? So would my family. We serve God because that's what we're made to do, not because there's goals to be reached. Quitting isn't an option. Paul says you've got to have much patience when you're serving. You've got to serve in tribulations. In fact, expect them, Peter says. Why do you count it strange when these fiery trials come upon you? Plan on it. Jesus warned us about it. In needs, yes. Not wants. Sometimes you're going to have needs that aren't being met. You know? You know the two things that God promises servants? Food and clothing. Well, that's pretty good. He doesn't include shelter. Nowhere in Scripture does he ever say that a servant's going to have shelter, just food and clothing. Now, we get a whole lot more than that here in our country, right? For the most part. So you may be short of food sometimes. You may be short of clothing. You definitely can be short of shelter. You may be short of congregation at times. Or anybody to minister to. Or any fruit. Tribulations and needs come in lots of different forms. Satan has lots of tools to get us to quit. In distresses, that means you're about to lose your life. Paul's been through many of those. Save your life and abandon ship, ministry, or lose your life and determine in your heart to go down with the ship. In distresses. In stripes, Paul was no stranger to beatings. The, the beatings that he would take, if you've ever read the description, they're called, they're the cane, you know, they give them stripes. And the, the max you could give according to the Levitical law was 40. And so the, the mercy they would show is, you know, 39. We didn't give you the maximum sentence of 40. We just caned you with a reed or something 39 times. I don't know if you've ever experienced that kind of, like maybe as a kid you got a wooden spoon or something, you know, kind of thing. Imagine 39, you know. If you don't know what it's like, we can do a demonstration after church. I'll be glad to beat any of you for free. I laugh because I can't imagine how many times he got beat for the gospel, for serving, by the people he was trying to save. Yikes. In labors, why is he going through all this? Because he gave no offense. You look at my life and you have disgust when you look at me, Paul says, but I'm explaining to you what I've gone through to serve you and to love you, and you're not seeing it. So that's why a couple times in 1 Corinthians says, I'm embarrassed that I have to bring this up. It's embarrassing I have to talk about this, but you don't understand. So let me show you and tell you what's taken place in my life. Patience, tribulations, needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, riots, Going into a riot or causing a riot because of the truth. I haven't ever caused a riot. I've had someone flip me off before. Someone say the F word to us as we were holding a sign, maybe. You know, but that's as rowdy as I have ever gotten with the gospel. Do you hear what they said to me? Persecution, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) Paul would laugh me right off of his mission field. I always make fun of John Marr for wanting to go home to be with his mom, you know, in the middle of the missions trip. And Barnabas is upset because he won't take John Mark on the second trip. And Paul's like, he can't handle it. Barnabas is like, I think he can now. He says, I'm not taking that kid. You can understand why. Paul says, we're going to get beat. Mark, are you ready to get beat? You know, no. 
labors. He worked, made tents, also advocated for salaries and ministry. Nothing wrong with that, he says. He says, but I don't. I make tents because I don't want that to be an excuse for people to not come to Christ because you think I'm doing it for cash. I'm not. Sleeplessness. In other words, by the end of the day, and I've done everything I'm supposed to do, the last thing on my list is sleep. I make sure everything's done. Otherwise, no sleep. And also because of the uncomfortableness, probably. Imagine nursing your wounds after a day of being beat. Hard to roll over. No Motrin, no Tylenol, no painkillers. Just darkness, cold, and a piece of crusty bread, maybe. Maybe. And some stale water. Fastings probably go along with that sleeplessness. You're so hungry, can't sleep. But also the fact that he would pray for people. Paul knew about Jesus. Paul knew that these kind only come out, demons, by prayer and fasting. He would know that. And if you're going into an especially spiritually active area, demonically, you know you're going to need to be prayed up to go into that place. And so I'm going to be fasting because I want to be effective in the ministry. That was more important than my belly comfort. You know? I complain. I look at 11 o'clock at night. I should be in bed. I'm looking through the fridge. We're out of cheese. You know? You don't need any more cheese, J.D. Yes, I do. You know? Fastings. Purity. Kept himself pure in all those things. Imagine. We know that he's a widower or divorced. We One of those two. But he doesn't have a wife. He remains pure. Imagine going to Corinth and remaining pure. Who would know and who would fault you? Corinth was known as the prostitution capital of the world at the time. Who cares? Even in the church, they had to talk themselves. You know what? You're not supposed to look like a prostitute anymore. Oh, yeah, that's right. No prostitution. At church, you know. Purity. Kept himself pure. And not just with that, but in all things, because he became a Jew to the Jews. He was a Gentile to the Gentiles. He was not a hypocrite to any people group. I mean, that guy walked a line that he set for himself, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of ministering to others. Knowledge. Studied, knew, always asking Timothy, bring my coat, but also bring the scriptures. They're precious to him. Knowing the word of God in such a way that he could share it and teach it so that people could understand it. He could teach the entire counsel of God to the Corinthian church in a year and a half. Can you imagine? Some people get upset. You did two chapters today. I can't hardly keep up. (laughs) Imagine listening. Of course, Paul's sermons were a lot longer than mine, too. We hit here from both ends. I got two chapters, and we get it done in about 45 minutes sometimes. Oh, 45 minutes. 30 minutes of singing, 45 minutes of church. That's an hour and 15. You're 15 over my limit for Sundays, you know. Paul would preach for hours and hours and hours and hours until someone falls asleep in the third floor, falls out, dies, they resurrect him, they come inside, and they go on with teaching, you know. The guy knew some stuff and was a good teacher by long-suffering, which means you have to suffer a long time to be a long-suffering person. There's no way around it. Oh, God, give me long-suffering. That means you've got to go past short suffering until you reach long suffering. That means suffering's coming your way, you know. Kindness. And in all these things, stripes, tribulations, distresses, riots, sleeplessness, he's kind. That's how he overcomes these things. I overcome them by purity. I overcome them by knowledge. I overcome them by long suffering. I put up with it a long time, and there's finally fruit. By kindness. By the Holy Spirit. He walked in the Spirit. He trusted in the Spirit. All the giftings that he ever had were by the Holy Spirit. Healings were done by the Holy Spirit. His teaching was by the Holy Spirit. Everything. By sincere love, not just love. There's a difference. I can show you that I love you or fool you that I love you. And many people do. But to have sincere love is to do all these things before that word. Hard to say that you have sincere love if you won't go through tribulations, if you won't be patient, if you don't suffer needs, distresses, these things. 
Paul's only comparing himself in a way that they can understand to these other teachers that they've invited in, that they've accumulated to put under their belt. Oh, I, I just love listening to this guy. This guy really, that guy doesn't even know who you are. Paul says, I do. I know you. I live with you. I love you. I care for you. I go through these things for you. That person over there that you hired, I don't even know who your, your name, you know? Sincere love. By the word of truth. That's a hard thing to stick to the word of truth because people want to hear the word of what's popular. But the word of truth can be either cutting, also encouraging, but it's convicting. It also can be condemning at times if you're not repentant. You know, I feel that. It says, I gave the word of truth by the power of God, not by programs. By advertisements, the power of God is what gave Paul the fruit in his ministry, not anything else. Changed lives. The Corinthian church is who they are, standing before God, clean and bright with the righteousness of Christ because Paul came to them with nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was the power of God that saved these people. Not Paul's um, excellent command of the audience, you know, his appearance, his speaking abilities, emphasizing, pointing, getting people's attention at the right time. It's funny how many of you just looked up. You see what I mean? You could do that. And maybe that's easier. Paul says, no, it is the power of God. The armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. I trusted in God's protection, never, never my own. By honor and dishonor. Now, he's going through these buys. Kind of a, a struggle as you go through it. I had armor on my right. I had armor on my left. But it was God's armor. I ministered, served you by honor and dishonor. Same crowd. Two different groups. Two different responses. Oh, Paul, that's the truth I've always wanted to hear. It's really touched my heart. It's changed my life. Paul, I noticed in verse 3, you skipped this part. You read this word wrong. Paul, you know, honor, dishonor, same crowd. I'm amazed at that sometimes. I'll have four or five people go, oh, wow. I was just reading that, or this just happened, and I heard that on the radio, and then that happened over here, and this happened. Wow, such confirmation. And then inevitably, there's the one email on Monday morning. Now, I know what you meant here, but as much as I'd love to hit delete, I don't. I read them. How did you both, all six of you, hear the same message? And those five were blown away and blessed by the Holy Spirit and his word, not by me, of course. And all you heard was the opportunity to critique. Was it the Holy Spirit or is it the heart? It's wrong. Evil report. Good report. By the way, there's a report. (laughs) Paul's like, you know, we hear everywhere that you're causing disruptions and that you're preaching against the law, they said to Paul. He says, that's not true. That's the evil report. And then the honest report, the good report is, yeah, but there's a church started here, 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 and here. You know? Oh, yeah. Good report, evil report. Deceivers. They counted Paul as a deceiver, yet it wasn't deception. It was true. I, uh, You've heard this before, but you're going to hear it again. Sorry. Um, first came to town to plant this church. I was invited to the Ministerial Alliance. Every town has them, Ministerial Alliance, and they all meet together, and it's all the senior pastors, and they get the donuts and the coffee, and none of us need any donuts and any coffee, that's for sure. But there they are sitting for us in, in a big And you begin to discuss what the idea is. I think how it starts is you want to be more like a team. You know, let's win the city for Christ. It's fine. I'm all for that. Um, but as I got there, the first meeting I was invited to as a guest, I had to put my name and my email down in there. You know, I'm in now. You know, 
I'm with the guys. Welcome to the club. Okay, I guess. I don't know if I want to join this club or not. And uh, they start talking about this Bible study that they want to do in one of the old folks' homes. We've got several. And they said, we're all going to take turns. I said, well, okay. I said, okay. And I'm looking at the list of churches on this email list and everything of who's all part of this alliance. I'm saying, this is, this is Jehovah's Witness. This is the Mormon church. So they're part of, who's here for the Jehovah's Witness? Who's the Mormons here? I'm looking at the crowd. Oh, they don't come. Are they on the list? Well, because, you know, and I said, well, we're not supposed to have, we're, we're not in alliance with them. They have a different gospel. They don't believe in the same Jesus. It's a whole different world. That means they're not saved. They all looked at me, you know. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, they're not saved. Did you not know that those are two horrible cults, you know, and they are the enemy and they come against us and they don't believe in the gospel. These guys don't believe in Jesus. They believe he's Michael the Archangel. They start going through this. They say, well, we don't call ourselves a ministry or alliance. We call ourselves a fellowship. Okay. Well, there's scriptures for that too. We're about to get that here. Their fellowship isn't supposed to have fellowship with darkness. How can light have fellowship with darkness? How can you do that? Well, I said too much, obviously, by that time. And so I said, you can take myself off that list. I don't want to be on the list anymore. I probably won't be coming back. And that was a bold thing to say in front of all these guys that have been doing this for, I'm the new guy. Who are you? And all I could think of on the way home in my heart was, there's a reason God brought us here. There's a reason God brought us here because everybody in that room was on board with these other people. I said, what happens when it's, so what if they don't come? So what if you say you know that they don't believe in the gospel and they don't believe in Jesus and you all agree with what I just said? You've got them on the list. It's going to be their turn to teach a Bible study. Are you going to let them? I don't think they'll come. What if they do? What are you going to do about it when they show up and they open up the Pearl of Great Price or the doctrines of whatever? And what are you going to do about it? Strong group for me. Well, there was an awful lot of retaliatory things that took place after that. We had a lot of things said about us, a lot of slanderous things. That's why we have to put on our website what we believe, our statement of faith. We're kind of like Baptocostals. We believe in the Word of God like the Baptists do, believe in the Holy Spirit like the Pentecostals do. We keep everything decently in order, but we're not weird. We believe Jesus is the only way. We believe in the Trinity. You got to go through all these things. No, we're not a cult. No, we don't think we're the only ones. We believe there's saved people all over. A cult doesn't. A cult thinks that everybody here is saved. Everybody outside of the group, we are one. You know, kind of weird. <laughs> no, every, we know there's lots of saved people out there. But you have to go against that because they were so convicted by what my stance was. These are important things. When you come to know Jesus Christ, you know, this isn't senior pastor stuff right here. This is normal biblical Christianity right here. It isn't okay. All these things are for us. As we serve God, no matter what capacity, Sunday school teacher, making coffee, cleaning a bathroom, sweeping, parking, security, whatever it is that you do, or outside of this building, in your own personal walk, all these things are coming into play. You're going to have to be patient in your ministry. You're going to have to have tribulations and be able to go through them and continue to serve. You're going to need to have needs not met and still serve Jesus Christ and distresses and all these things. It's important. You're a different breed as a Christian. We're not here to be soft and moody and dramatic We're here to be steadfast, immovable, serving our Lord no matter what comes our way. Alone or with everybody makes no difference. We serve Jesus Christ and Him only. So important. So they said we were deceivers, but we were true. Unknown and yet well-known. Dying and behold, we live. (laughs) Chastened, weren't killed. Paul thought that was a victory. Ah, you tried to kill me, but you didn't. You know, uh, he's limping away from the beating. We won. You don't look like you won, Paul. He says, no, we're not dead. 
Oh, okay, I guess that's the goal. And of course, if he died, he'd said, you know, he says, I counted as gain. So either way, you can't, you can't beat him. You can't beat him, but you can't defeat him. <laughs> Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Those two go together. We don't think they do. You can be sorrowful. I can be sorrowful that there are people that are lost and dying and not going to heaven who re- reject the gospel, but I'm still joyful in the Lord. I can still have both of those things. Poor, yet making many rich in spiritual things. This is what he's talking about. Having nothing, yet possessing all things. Oh, Corinthians, he says, exclamation point. And here's where Paul lays his heart out on his sleeve. We have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Or lack of them is what he's saying. We love you with open arms and open heart. We have nothing against you. I don't know what you think I have against you, but I don't. My arms are wide open and I love you. And you're standing there like this, Corinth. I don't think they love me like they should or whatever. He says, the only thing that's restricting our fellowship is you, Paul says, because I've got nothing against you. I've been wide open. Now, in return for the same affection is what he's saying. I speak as to children. You also be open. Open your arms. Stop being bitter. Stop being closed-hearted. Vain imaginations, all these things. He says, I'm I'm Paul. (laughs) Paul never talks like this in any of his writings. Do you ever hear him say things like this? He is truly being, here are the nails, here's the hammer. I am wide open. I love you with all of my heart. I just want you to love me back. Now, they can do one of two things here. They can crucify him and say, we do hate you. Or they can open up their arms and love him, you know, and understand that they've been foolish. 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, that's Satan, if you don't know. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, and I'm going to break here, but he's going to go on to describe that. We apply these passages right here, 12 through 16, to marriage, and it's true and very appropriate. Don't be the saved person that falls in love with the unbeliever thinking you're going to save them. Don't be unequally yoked. More often than not, you get pulled down. There are those miraculous moments and times and specific situations where someone comes to know the Lord 20 years after they've been married to an unbeliever. Fine. But that's not what we're called to as Christians. We're not called to gamble that way with our hearts. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. It'll be disastrous in the end. But that goes way beyond just marriage. It goes to business, too. You can't be business partners with an unbeliever. Their goals aren't the same. Their morals aren't the same. They won't stand up against corruption like you will. Ethics isn't in their vocabulary because they're fluid. I listened to a guy talk about pulling horses. You know, we watched a pull a horse pull up in, what was that city? No, no, Pickering. We watch the horses pull, and they hook up a team of horses. And they say that one horse can pull 6,000, but two of them teamed together cannot pull 12,000, but they pull 18,000. And they say if they're brothers, if they've grown up together, they can pull 24,000. Isn't that strange? It's a multiplication kind of thing. When you hook up or team up or fellowship with someone, it needs to be a believer. And it's amazing what God will do, what you can pull, how you can encourage one another. You know, you hook up with an unbeliever, you're going to be pulling in two separate directions. You won't go anywhere and you'll accomplish nothing. That's in business or anything, anything. So important. Paul's begging them, please don't do this thing, you know. Um, We've got to close here. We'll finish up. I will dwell in them, God says. I will walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Being separate doesn't mean being a separatist. 
You don't want to be dirty or filthy. No, we're, we're in the world. We're just not of it. We're called to be set apart. These are things that we're called to do. These are choices that we make. And next week when we get into this chapter 7, you're going to see how many choices we have. See, God has given us the freedom to obey his word. He's given us the, he set us free from our sin to obey the word, but we still have to obey the word or not obey the word. You still have that choice. We have all these promises. I've got to read this last verse in chapter 7, verse 1, and then really then I'll stop, I promise. Therefore, having these promises, everything I just said, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Wait a minute, I thought the blood of Jesus cleansed me from all unrighteousness. Of course it does. He's also saying, be set apart. Cleanse yourselves. Say no to sin. Say no to the circumstances. Stay out of those situations. Don't yoke yourself with unbelievers. Don't just walk through life saying, I don't know, you know, doop the doop, you know. Things are just happening to me. No, they're not. These are choices. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We have a role to play in our sanctification. Yes, we're set apart by Jesus Christ, but we're also not to put ourselves in the world and be of the world. We're called to separate from that. To say no to sin in my life is required by me. He's not going to do it through osmosis. He's not just, you know, control me like a puppet. We've been set free from sin. We don't have to sin anymore, but we do have the freedom to sin or to obey his word. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter. We thank you for Paul's heart, his love, his openness for these people, his willingness to say everything he needs to say. For their sake. This isn't going to benefit him at all. He could have left and gone to Galatia or he could have gone to Ephesus or some other place that already loves him. He wouldn't have to worry about this one group that doesn't. But he stays and he ministers and he serves and he writes letters because he desperately wants them to have that fellowship with him and to have that fellowship with Christ. God help us to have that towards one another, Lord not quit, to not give up on each other, to love each other, to open our arms to one another, to forgive, to let go of bitterness and anger and wrath and malice and slander, and to love. And help us to be light and salt in this world. It'll be difficult. It is hard to be separate, to not be a part of the gang at work or even at family meals sometimes or celebrations, whatever it may be, but to be light and salt in all of these things is to ask for tumults sometimes, riots. It's to ask to be shunned, to not be liked or to be talked to. Many of these things are just part of it. God, help us to know it's such a, it's such a blessing to be on your side, to be in your fellowship, not in theirs, if that's the choice. We love your fellowship. We love your word. We love to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have a good rest of the week.